Because today's topic has to do with investments, I need to insert a brief disclaimer. Nothing that follows should be considered financial advice. Definitely work with a qualified financial advisor or tax advisor to make important investment decisions. This is for entertainment and educational purposes only. And hopefully it will be both. Hey, it's Justin Harvey. Thanks for tuning in to the Anesthesia and Pain Management Success Podcast. With APM Success, we take a close look at important topics pertaining to business, practice management, personal finance, and careers for anesthesiologists and pain management physicians. We work hard to take your critical questions straight to the experts. Thanks for listening. Welcome to episode 129 of APM Success. Today, we're going to be taking on a topic uh, having to do with economics and investment, and it's going to be a little bit wonkier and more data-driven than normal, so (laughs) you will be forgiven if you wanted to fast forward past this episode of This Is Not Your Cup of Tea, but I wanted to address a very real economic trend we're seeing right now, the inflation that's happening in our U.S. economy across a lot of different parts of the economy. Inflation is frequently happening in isolated parts of the economy at any given time. What we're seeing right now is widespread inflation across many different sectors that is starting to catch the eye of our friends in DC. Whenever the government wants to get involved in inflation and trying to address it, that is when we can expect policy coming down the pike, well, specifically actions from the Federal Reserve and the FOMC, the Federal Open Market Committee, That is the governing board of the Federal Reserve, which is obviously the national bank that sets benchmark rates for how banks can lend. And there's this rate called the overnight rate, which is the interest rate at which the Federal Reserve will lend money overnight to commercial banks. And, you know, inflation historically is something that we don't have to look far to, you know, in the last few decades, there's been a number of examples of even hyperinflation. Hyperinflation is when inflation happens so fast that common everyday goods quickly become unaffordable in the normal currency. And this is frequently driven by governments literally printing money, printing bills, more bills in order to purchase whatever good or service they need to for national spending purposes. This increases the money in circulation in a given country. This increases spending and the cost of goods then goes up until there's an equilibrium that is found. What we've seen in the last couple of years with what the government has been doing with coronavirus and lots of stimulus flying in all different directions, some of it easy to understand, some of it utterly baffling. (laughs) One thing is for sure is that the money supply has been increased in a massive way that is difficult to understand or quantify, but it certainly presents significant inflationary pressure. When inflation happens, debt rates go up. The the rate of your mortgage, the rate of your student loan, if you're refinancing, the market rates for those things are going up. Something like the cost of bread or peanut butter and jelly uh, is going to go up. The cost of whatever the good or service is, is increasing. Housing any other, you know, cars we're seeing right now as well. In addition, what we also frequently see is wage expansion when there's inflationary pressure. Anecdotally, I have observed people who are trying to hire uh, have a very difficult time finding people and 
uh, you know, we've heard about the great resignation the last year and a half where people have quit their jobs without even a plan B <laughs> who just want to take a break. And the, the options abound for this decentralized workforce of the future, which is finally being embraced by the economy at large. Here's, here's the point. There's many, many inflationary pressures from all different angles right now. And this has implications for your job, for your income. This has implications for the affordability of the things you need to buy for your family to live, for you know the, the debt refinancing, for your home, for your student loans. And so what I want to do is unpack some of the implications of this today. As I mentioned before, the Federal Open Market Committee, the FOMC, basically imagine inflation is like a car. The FOMC imagines that it is at the steering wheel and it has a few instruments in its power to be able to to make inflation speed up or slow down. And they like to try to, you know, see between one to two and a half percent annual inflation has historically been a, a comfortable level. And that's what we've seen for the last couple of decades. And what they do is they, you know, offer guidance to how they want to change the benchmark rate, the, the federal funds rate. And then everyone else, all the other banks in the nation set their rates accordingly. So imagine it's a big game of Simon Says. Simon is the Federal Open Markets Committee. Say, hey, we're taking rates from 1% to 1.5%. And that is essentially the first domino falling in a series of dominoes that trickles all throughout the economy. And all other commercial banks that have mortgages, that have auto loans, that have credit cards, any other financer of debt, you know, companies that want to float bonds that offer uh, a coupon payment to bondholders, anyone else who's issuing debt, every interest rate is being in some way related to this federal funds rate. So the federal funds, the federal open market committee then wields a, a pretty big amount of power in having the ability to adjust this rate. As the rate goes up, it cools off the economy. Spending seizes up a little bit. People are not as eager to, you know, run up a credit card bill or to, you know, take out a second mortgage to do something. If that mortgage, instead of being 3%, is 6 or 9%. And there have been times in the past when it's been 10, 15, 18% for a mortgage, which is hard to believe in this era of 2.5% 30-year fix, which is what we've seen recently. So whenever the Federal Reserve thinks that the economy is overheating when inflation is happening, when there's this danger that costs of goods and services are going to begin to run out of control, they raise the rates. And rates have continued to remain near all-time lows for the last handful of years. But we're, we're at this place now in the last you know, handful of months, there is real inflation, quantifiable inflation happening now. And there is talk of what does this mean for rates? The resultant, the related considerations what, what do we do on the investment side? So we've got the debt side and then the investment side. Let's take one at a time. In a world in which rates are low, but may be going up, in terms of your debt, any fixed rate debt. So if you've got a 30-year fixed mortgage, you know, you maybe you locked in that two and a half or 3%. Good for you. Like you're not in any danger. As inflation happens, it's actually very bizarre. You're going to be paying your mortgage in dollars <laughs> that are worth less and less and less over time. So you're actually really the winner in that deal because the bank is getting a fixed amount of interest. Eventually, if new mortgages are being issued at 7.5% and yours is at 2.5%, you're really sitting pretty. The people that need to look out, the people that should beware and perhaps take action 
right now are the ones who have variable rate debt products, whether it's a mortgage or a credit card or a line of credit or any other sort of revolving debt. The reason is when you have a floating rate, that floating rate is pegged to a benchmark rate plus a certain amount of percentages and you know, measured in what we call basis points. So one basis point is 0.01%. So maybe it's the uh, you know federal funds rate plus 200 basis points. That means that your, your debt, whatever it is, is financed at federal funds plus 2%. So as the federal funds rate comes up or any of the other benchmark rates come up, your rate and the amount of interest you're gonna be paying on that debt is also going up. So what you should do, what you should consider doing in a time when there's a lot of upward pressure on rates is refinance or consolidate to some sort of fixed rate product. Now, if you think you're gonna pay off your debt in the next you know, couple of years, you've significantly mitigated the risk of something bad happening. What we don't want is for you to be in a floating rate product, say a floating rate mortgage that resets every year. This is called an adjustable rate mortgage or an ARM. Maybe it's a 5-1 ARM where you have a five-year fixed rate period. And then every year after that, it resets to whatever the benchmark rate is plus some margin. Once that benchmark rate comes up off of <laughs> the basement floor and is two, three, five, seven percent you might find yourself paying an adjustable rate mortgage of 8% per year in a, in a couple of years. Now, if you had refinanced that to a fixed rate, you could have locked in that lower rate and have paid that for forever. Again, the longer you're gonna be paying on any amount of debt, the more the risk is to you. Because if you're paying at 8% for 20 years, when that 8% should have been 4%, that's a significant opportunity cost and you should have refinanced. So this is one thing to think about when inflation is happening on the debt side of things. Same with student loans. You know, if you have an adjustable student loan that you're planning on continuing to pay for a period of time, first of all, I would say, is it possible to just pay it off because student debt is unsecured. It's the, <laughs> the mortgage on your brain and it's my personal bias to just get out of that kind of debt as soon as possible. But if you can't, if you need to make payments over 10, 15 or 20 years, are you able to refinance into a fixed rate to reduce the risk of rates going up when the federal open market committee wants to raise rates, federal funds rate comes up, your floating rate is gonna come up and that debt is gonna get more and more expensive and become a bigger and bigger part of your monthly budget. So that's the debt side. Inflation is challenging for people in debt if your rate is adjustable. It actually, you could argue that it helps you if your rate is fixed because the value of the tangible asset, for example, if you have a 2.5% mortgage, <laughs> inflation may actually help the value of your home. So if you buy a half a million dollar house that over a few years goes up to $700,000, you haven't put any more money into that house, but it's gone up for gone up $200,000 in value. That inflation has been a tailwind for you, but the cost has been the same, which is a great reason. One of the, one of the reasons that being a homeowner can, in some instances, significantly increase your wealth over time. So what other things should you be aware of if you're thinking about investments? I, ha I have some clients, especially those approaching retirement who are saying, Justin, I'm a little nervous. What does inflation mean for me as I transition into retirement? And what types of things can or should we be doing in order to counteract or adjust for inflation? So a couple things I wanna say. The first is that when rates rise, the value of bonds falls. It's like a seesaw. Rates go up, bond value goes down. 
So when rates are coming up and the Federal Mar Federal Open Market Committee is talking about raising rates, what that means is that new debt is going to be issued at a higher interest rate. So if we take a really practical example, say I'm a big company, Johnson & Johnson, and I wanna issue a 10-year bond, $10,000 at 4%. That's based on current market conditions. And because I'm J&J, &J, I'm looking to the federal funds rate to set that rate of 4%. And so that's something that is determined when I'm selling bonds. Now, the Federal Open Market Committee decides, you know what, rates are coming up and we're raising the Fed funds rate. So now instead of maybe it was 1%, now it's coming up to 2% for the federal funds rate. Now as J&J, &J, my $10,000 bond, instead of being able to pay a bar, pay a, a lender 4%, so $400 a year on that $10,000 bond, I now have to issue a 5% bond and pay $500 per year. So uh, what that means is, you know, say I, I bought the bond from J&J &J last month. I have a $10,000 bond that pays 4%. Somebody who buys that bond today, it's the same cost, but it's a 5% coupon payment. That's what it's called whenever you get the periodic payment from an issuer of debt, coupon payment. And so what do you think that means about the person who bought the 4% bond last month? It's not worth as much, right? Because at $10,000 that they paid, they're only getting 4% when I'm getting 5% on the bond I bought today. So that one that they paid $10,000 for a month ago, that's probably worth, you know, $9,600. There's a, there's a movement in price to adjust for the, the reduced coupon payment. So whenever rates are coming up and bond values are going down, that's what's happening. It's because new debt is issued at a higher coupon payment. So everything that's been issued before, it ratchets down to account for this. So people out there who have a huge bond portfolio, this is gonna be something that needs to be addressed because it's a headwind for bonds. Whenever rates come up, bonds go, bond values go down. Now you can somewhat mitigate this. You can mitigate the effect of this by having what they call shorter duration bonds, which is essentially bonds of a shorter term. If it's a one or two year bond, that means there's only one or two years worth of coupon payments being impacted where there's an opportunity cost. So, you know, say this J&J &J bond, it was a, a one-year bond that I got from Johnson & Johnson at 4%. Now, if a month later, I can get that same one-year bond at 5%, because it's only one year, there's only a couple coupon payments, it's not that big of a deal. But if it's a 30-year bond, and I buy that 30-year bond, and I'm only getting 4%, and then a month later, that 30-year bond is gonna pay 5%, we're talking about 30 years worth of interest payments that are now gonna be 1% lower on the 4% bond. And as such, that significantly hurts the, the face value the redemption value of that, that bond. So without getting any further into the weeds, <laughs> what other imp what impact on other assets does inflation have and how do we work around that? There are some types of assets that are helped by inflation, specifically tangible assets. Think about, you know, when we talk about inflation, it's the increase of cost of goods. So if you own those goods, the things that people wanna buy, the value of them is going up because people are willing to pay more and more. I live in Portland. Portland, like many markets nationally, has a red hot housing market. There's very little inventory. It's a seller's market and prices are just going through the roof. If you own that tangible asset of a house and this inflation is happening, this inflationary pressure is being exerted in the economy, it's a great time to own a house because the house that you bought for 500 is now worth 750 or 800. And your ownership of that tangible asset creates investment gains for you in this case. Another way to hedge 
against inflation and the the danger that inflation is going to erode the value of your money and the purchasing power of your money is to invest in global equities. Specifically, I mean a globally diversified basket of stocks. So we have companies in the US, companies in Europe, companies in Asia and Africa, companies in Australia, and all of the, you know, the interdependent economies and the, the way that currencies, the, the relative currency pricing between all of these companies, that, especially some that deal globally, it all is going to be, there, there's natural hedges built in because if the dollar is being inflated, that means that it's being devalued against other currencies. But if I own companies that are doing business globally or that are doing business in other countries, then I'm also exposed to currencies that are performing better and profits of companies in countries where the currency is performing better. So this is a, a natural way to have some amount of protection from inflationary pressure. Now, obviously, it's a that's a two-edged sword. So whenever there's a strong currency domestically or weak currencies abroad or vice versa, you're always winning somewhere and losing somewhere else. They We have a, a saying about diversification. It's diversification means always having to say you're sorry. So if you own a broad basket of stocks, and for my clients, it's somewhere around 12,000 different stocks across the mutual funds and ETFs that we invest in, there's going to be winners and losers. But if you're globally diversified, there's natural inflation hedges built in. Another mechanism that you could consider to protect your portfolio against inflation is TIPS, which is Treasury Inflect Treasury Inflation Protected Securities. This is U.S. Treasury bonds that have a mechanism built in to adjust for inflation so that when inflation happens, your treasury bond adjusts in price to compensate you for that inflation. So this is a way to have a very stable U.S. bond with a little bit of upside attached to inflation. People who want to have a bond portfolio and are interested in having inflation protection built in may want to consider tips. Other tangible assets like, you know, I mentioned real estate, precious metals, or I mean, any other commodity, anything that you pay money for and you receive in return in terms of a tangible asset, that that they have been construed as inflation hedges at times. And Certain times they've been good. Gold, for example. There have been certain times when gold has been a good inflationary hedge and certain times when that has not been true. So it's certainly not a perfect hedge. And at the end of the day, it's just a shiny metal that you can put in a vault and then you hope it's worth more money on the day that you take it out than the day that you put it in. So you got to think carefully about, you know, if if that makes sense for you. Another, here's a very, so that's on the investment side, you know, Investing in some measure of tangible assets, being globally diversified, having exposure to tips, understanding what rising rates mean for your bond portfolio and adjusting accordingly. These are all really important things to keep in mind when you're thinking about an investment strategy in an era of inflation. And to give you a quick historical example and bit of context, we had a time in the 1970s when I was uh, negative 16 years old or so, starting in 1970, when our country experienced significant year-over-year inflation every year for over a decade. And this had significant 
economic impact in a lot of different ways. I'm looking at a historical chart here. If I look at this, the 12 years from 1970 to 1981, the average inflation rate was 7.9% each year. So 7.9%, that's that's huge. What we for context, what we've seen in the last, you know, 20, 25 years has been closer to one and a half to two percent. So seven percent annualized, that's compounding and has a the ability to really significantly erode purchasing power of your dollars and stuff gets way, way more expensive in that kind of environment. In order to protect yourself as an investor of things getting too expensive, you need to be making money on your investments. And you need to be protected against inflation. And one of the things that we saw is that the stock market, in this case, as measured by the S&P, over that time when inflation was, you know, 7.8%, the stock market was up eight, call it eight and a half on average over that time. So it's true that, you know, eight and a half percent per year, that's a great return. It's about the historical average. But at a time when inflation has been significant, you know, seven and a half a year on average. We're talking about a real return of somewhere between 0.5 and 1% in terms of purchasing power. Now, you could argue, well, isn't there anything we could be doing better or should be invested differently? And it's, I mean, hindsight's 2020. It's very difficult to have armchair quarterbacked your way to better investment returns. But the point is, stock market, in this case, did protect the purchasing power and actually increased it somewhat over that period of time. Whereas, you know, if you look at what bonds did, and I'm looking at, let's see, what is this, uh, 10 year treasury bonds over that period of time, average returns were about 5%, which is great for bonds. You know, a, a 10 year T bond, 5%, that's awesome. Like the US government isn't going to go out of business. So 5% to hold US government debt is a good deal in most cases. But if inflation is seven and a half, we have what we, uh, a real return, that's the, nominal return, what the, the number return minus inflation. If the bond has given us 5% and inflation has been seven and a half, even though we made 5%, it still was a two and a half percent loss of purchasing power. So, you know, this is a time when you need to be intentional again about how you're using bonds in your portfolio. It's still very effective to protect the value of a big chunk of your portfolio. So if we're talking about asset protection, it worked. It worked for that. There were no huge you know, sell-offs in the bond market. There were actually a couple of really, really strong years, but it was, it was not going to get you, wasn't going to make you rich. So thinking about the portfolio as a whole, as it relates to inflation is, you know, it's important to have a, a well-synthesized strategy. Some of the, as I mentioned before, some of the people who are most concerned are those who are moving towards retirement. And actually, before I get there, it's, it's related to one of the best ways, one of the best natural inflation hedges. The best natural inflation hedge, best way to protect yourself against rising costs is to keep on making money, <laughs> to make actually more and more money over time, to negotiate raises, to find ways to, you know, have side gigs, to find ways to pick up locum shifts, to consult, to do other things, or to just, you know, experience natural wage appreciation as labor markets tighten, which we've seen that. I've seen that in anesthesia and pain, and I look specifically at anesthesiology a number of even academic centers that have been historically pretty stable in terms of what they've been paying have been offering like, you know, five to 10% or more increases in base salary on, tops of, on top of big signing bonuses. This has been pretty rare in the past based on what I've heard from people over the last, you know, 10 years or so. But in the last couple of years, 
specifically in the last six months, this has been, I've been seeing this more and more. So if you continue to make money, you know, maybe you can make more money because of these same factors and you can use that to your advantage. This becomes a problem and people should be concerned if they're moving towards retirement and are on a fixed income. They're on social security pr primarily, or they have a huge swath of their portfolio in bonds, specifically longer duration bonds that are going to be very exposed to a rising rate environment. You wanna be really thoughtful about, is this the best long-term fit in that kind of circumstance? If you're too conservative, then you're not gonna have enough stocks to be able to grow your way through that inflation like what we saw in the 70s. You know, the being invested in stocks was really the best way to endure because there weren't other assets readily available that <laughs> were gonna do a better job than that. So here's the bottom line. If you're worried about inflation, specifically, you know, during your working years and into retirement, think about this question. What portion of your retirement income will not be able to grow if inflation happens? Or what portion of your retirement assets won't be able to grow if inflation happens? For Social Security, you get a cost of living adjustment based on CPI, but historically that's been a bad approximation of real world inflation. So if you're depending on that, that's obviously if you're a doctor and you're depending on Social Security, you've, you've probably already made some significant mistakes. But also, you know, pensions, annuities, other fixed income products, people on a fixed income in general, rising rates is going to be very, very problematic. Or people with a huge chunk of bonds who don't realize how much risk they have in terms of duration. There's a lot of longer term bonds that are going to really get hit whenever rates rise. That can be a problem. In addition, you want to think about the time horizon. And I always, this is an exercise I go through with my clients. Like, how soon are we going to need this money? If this money is for two years from now, for buying a house, then we don't want to put that at risk in the stock market because we might need it. We're talking CDs, high yield savings accounts, or some other short-term, very conservative, very safe type of vehicle. But if we're talking longer term, 20, 30, 40 years, even if you're retiring at age 65, you know, there's a, it's a coin flip if you're a, a female that you might live to, or one in three females at age 65 live until age 90. And so the odds of you having a, 25 plus year time horizon are, are very reasonable. And so to have a meaningful part of your portfolio invested accordingly makes a lot of sense. So I've thrown a lot at you today. Hopefully some of this is helpful. For younger physicians, the bottom line is equities historically have been a really effective way to hedge against eroding purchasing power due to inflation. If you're approaching retirement, you really want to be thoughtful about what does your retirement income plan look like? If you have any liquidity events coming up that you're depending on, how are you going to deploy that cash in a way that's going to give you a durable and reliable income stream in the future that is going to be cognizant of these increasing inflation pressures? So that's all I've got for today. A little bit more of an esoteric investment topic, but hopefully you found that interesting. As always, thanks for tuning in. If you liked what you heard this week, head on over to apmsuccess.com where you can find more content and free resources to help you build a successful career in anesthesia and pain management. If you wanted to leave a review in iTunes, I'd also really appreciate it. Thanks for using some of your valuable time to join me today on APM Success.